And that led to a series of the word choice is not really the best word because choice implies a level of conscious awareness and control that I didn't have, but it led me nonetheless into, let's call it a choice toward addiction. The pain that I experienced inside was something that felt like it was too much for me. And like so many people who turn to alcohol or drugs or food or shopping or sex, I turned toward addiction and I became severely bulimic. I had a very, very severe eating disorder. And I've come to realize that addiction, regardless of what our choice of substance may be, is actually a spiritual yearning that's gone awry because the yearning says this pain, this experience, this identification, this inner turmoil, this is not the place I should be, but we don't know what else to do. And so we turn to something that even momentarily seems to numb us, to take us away from feeling that pain. And that for me was what I did in my adolescence and in my early 20s. And by 25, when I went to India, I had gotten to a place in my life where I really felt like I was actually managing things quite well. I had learned in to some extent to manage my food, to manage the addiction, to manage my pain. It still was there, but I was learning how to kind of micromanage, micromanage what I ate, micromanage the addiction, micromanage the emotions and the feeling, and also to manage my education. I was in the midst of getting a, a PhD in psychology. I had graduated undergrad from Stanford and was doing the a PhD in psych and managed my marriage, managed my relationships and thought that I really had things under control, but I was definitely not free. I was happy to the extent that I could be at that time in my life in the midst of such turmoil and such stuckness. But I didn't know. I didn't even know that freedom was a possibility. Nobody ever said to me, by the way, you don't have to deal with this forever. You don't have to identify as this forever. You don't have to struggle with an eating disorder forever. There actually is the possibility of freedom. Nobody ever ever mentioned that to me, ever said that that was possible. So when I got to India, it was an extraordinary experience because I had no idea why I was going. Simply to get good vegetarian food made really no sense. We were living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and as you know very well, you can get really good Indian vegetarian food on pretty much every corner. So to fly across the world to a country that I knew nothing about simply because I could get good vegetarian food 
really didn't make much sense. And I knew that. I knew that. And so on the airplane over, I had taken a vow. And that vow has become just the most amazing, miraculous moment for which I am so grateful. And that vow was that I would keep my heart open. That since I didn't know why I was going, I felt like there must be a reason. I had always believed in a capital P plan. So I wasn't religious. I wasn't even someone who would say, well, I was religious, but I mean, I was spiritual, but not religious. I wouldn't have even said that. But I did always believe in a capital P plan. I had spent enough time in science laboratories to know that even when you are very purposeful about what you stick into your crucible and when you turn on your Bunsen burner, nonetheless, the vast majority of time, you get nothing. Sometimes you get a bad smell, sometimes you get kind of some smoke, but you certainly don't get life. And the idea that all of this had been created totally randomly didn't make any sense to me as a scientist. And so I always believed that there was this capital P plan. And therefore, there must have been a capital P planner. And so I said on the airplane, I said, okay, God, okay, capital P planner, whoever you are, I'm going to keep my heart open because there must be a reason I'm going to India that I'm not aware of. And I'm going to keep my heart open to know what it is. And I will be forever grateful for that moment because that led me then over the next 7, 10, 15 days to travel to Rishikesh as the very first place we went to stay in a hotel that turns out at the time it was the only hotel there right next to right in back of Parmarth Nikathan, the ashram where I now live and where by destiny I was meant to arrive. But it also turned out to be the only hotel that required us to carry all of our luggage across a 400 foot swinging footbridge. And I laugh because I think how easy it would have been to say to the driver, you know what, forget it. Just take us to a different hotel. Take us to any hotel where you can drop us off right at the doorstep. We hadn't sent any money in advance to the hotel. But when the driver said, you cross bridge. Now, of course, there's a boat, there are coolies, you don't actually have to carry your luggage across the bridge, but we didn't know that. The driver didn't tell us that. He said, you cross bridge. So we picked up our luggage, carried it across the bridge. And after we put our luggage down in the hotel, I said, I'm going to put my feet in the river. And I went down to the banks of the sacred Ganga River standing right on the platform of the Parmarth Nikathan Ashram. But of course, I didn't know that. And I had the most extraordinary experience of 
the perfection of the universe. I could see the divine, not just with my eyes, but with every, every way of knowing, of seeing that I had. And it was, it was divine, it was perfect. And in that, I also realized the perfection of me, who was not separate from that divine. And I had always felt like there was something wrong with me, that there was something not good enough, something that I had to, had to always kind of fix. And in that moment, I realized it's all perfect. And I am part of that perfection. And it just, it knocked me to the ground in tears. And all I could say was, oh my God, it's so beautiful. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. And cry. And over the next, the next week or so, I had these incredible experiences that if I hadn't taken this vow to keep my heart open, there is no way I, as the academic scientist, would have gone along with this. I mean, I heard a voice and the voice told me, you must stay here right as I was walking through Parmarth Nikitan. I literally got my feet glued to the ground of the ashram. I could not pick them up and walk out. And it was these types of series of things that happened that made me know this is where I am meant to be. And it's been just the most extraordinary 25 years of experiencing the presence of the divine outside of me, inside of me, the awareness that there is no outside, there is no inside, and being able to be a, a vehicle, a vessel, a, an instrument, as St. Francis of Assisi said so beautifully, of, of service, of peace, of love. Uh, you know, I think one of the interesting stories in the book uh, is uh, sort of the way you described how these people were being polite to you when you asked to stay there. <laughs> yes. And uh, basically, <laughs> yes. it wasn't because you were waiting for somebody, it was to be polite to you to get rid of you. Yes, yes. You know, they do write in the guidebooks, I just hadn't read it yet that very frequently in India, people will tell you what they think you want to hear rather than necessarily the exact truth. And, and it's done with a very pure intention. It's just that in their mind, making you happy in the moment is the highest goal. And so for the people in the office, the story that uh, Jim is referring to is, when I heard the voice telling me that I needed to stay there, I went in and told them in the office I wanted to stay. And 25 years ago, you couldn't actually just walk into the ashram as a random person off the street from abroad as a single woman and get a room. 
in traditional spiritual India, they don't they don't tend to take in foreigners like that just just off the street. Now, in 25 years, everything has changed. In 25 years, so many people from all over the world have started coming. And of course, the ashram is open to everyone. People today send in an email, walk in off the street and get rooms. But at that time, I needed the permission, I was told, of the president of the ashram, who it turned out was not just an administrative head, as in my American mind, I had thought they said president. And in my mind, I pictured this, you know, man in a suit and tie with a briefcase, and he was going to come and determine my worthiness of getting a room in his ashram. But he wasn't that. He actually is one of India's most revered, beloved spiritual leaders, just an embodiment of divine grace and divine love. And so I had to wait for him and they didn't know where he was. They didn't know when he was coming back. It turns out he actually was in America. He founded a project called the Encyclopedia of Hinduism, which was a project that finally culminated in the publication of 11 volumes of about 600 pages each, the very first authentic, comprehensive encyclopedia of Hinduism ever. And at that time in 96, things were on in full swing and it was headquartered at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina. And so he was actually in South Carolina at the time, but the people, the people in the off in the office of the ashram didn't know that. And they thought rather than saying, I don't know, which in their mind, I guess, seemed not happy making, like that I wasn't going to be happy to hear. We don't know. We don't have any idea. They just said something that they thought would make me happy which was, he's coming tomorrow. And who knows, maybe he would come. And so every day for a week, I would go back and say, is he here? And every day they would say, maybe tomorrow, maybe he'll come tomorrow. So yes, it was a a beautiful story. And I had not yet read that part in the guidebook that mentions that Primarily, their agenda is to make you feel good rather than to tell a truth that might not be be so pleasant to hear. But eventually, you know, he did come. You were talking about your, uh, <clears throat> you know, pain and suffering from this trauma, and it's interesting because so many people with uh, bulimia really are trying to control themselves in a way to uh, deal with their pain. And as obviously, you know, um, it doesn't work. Yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, it's, it's unfortunate because, uh, uh, you know, we look at Western medicine and uh, unfortunately, oftentimes in the West, we don't have the humility 
uh, to understand that the practices the uh, that have been uh, occurred over generations, thousands of years, actually have a meaning, a purpose, and that can be uh, quite profound. But the key, I think, as you point out, is to have an open heart uh, to begin with and accept uh, all possibilities. And certainly with a scientific mind like yours, though, I'm sure that there were um, words of caution that came over and over again. And in fact, I think you mentioned our mutual friend, Phil Zimbardo, and your parents yes. <laughs> that you kept hearing them telling you to leave. Yes, yes. Well, you know, it's, it's sad, actually, because when you start to study something only academically, and you only get the external aspects of it, there are times where you miss something. And so, yes, I had been a star student of Phil Zimbardo, adored him, still adore him. He was by far my favorite professor ever. And I had taken a class that was available only for psychology majors and only for seniors. So you could only take it your senior year and only if you were a psych major. And that too, it was a packed 250 person lecture hall. And the class was called the psychology of mind control. And we studied, we studied how cults work. We studied how brainwashing works. We studied all of that. And having studied all of that in a very academic way, and of course, I got an A plus in the class and he announced it to the whole class and announced that he almost never gave A pluses in his class. And when he met my parents on graduation, told them, you know, that I was his star student. And then here we are just, you know, a few short years later, and I found myself in an ashram on the banks of Ganga in this very sacred place, sitting, sitting before an extraordinary being, a leader. And I had said to him, I had been in India and in Rishikesh with him in the ashram, maybe, I don't know, three, four days at that point, maybe five days maximum. And I said, Swamiji, I feel so blessed. I feel so blessed. You have graced me with these amazing experiences, with this amazing connection to the divine. You've given me this beautiful, heavenly place to stay in. I said, I want to give something back. And you have to picture the scene. So we were in his area, but in not the room where he generally met everyone for what's called darshan, but in the room where he had more of his meetings regarding projects and things like that. So we were in that room, which was more of a, a private area where he could sit with people who had come to discuss a variety of different projects for humanitarian programs and schools and education and women's programs and environmental programs. So we were sitting in there 
And it was just the two of us. And I say, I want to, I want to give something back, please. What can I do? And he looks at me and he says, anything? And this was where, this was where Phil Zimbardo's voice and my mother's voice come in my head of just stand up and leave, just walk out the door. And I knew though, my heart knew. And I said, yeah, anything. Knowing that actually, regardless of what he asked, I would have given it to him. My heart just knew it. And he looks me deeply in the eyes and he says, you promise? And now I can hear, I can hear Dr. Zimbardo. I can hear my mom just getting louder and louder in my head. My mom is starting to kind of shriek in my brain, just leave, just stand up and walk out the door. But I knew. My heart just knew, and I said, yes, yes, I promise. And he then, he kind of chuckled a little bit in this very lighthearted, kind of breaking the intensity of the moment laugh. And he says, okay, three things. He says, first, get closer and closer to God. Every day, I want you to be closer to God at the end of the day than you were in the morning. Number two, serve the world. He said, you've been given so much. You've been so blessed. Use those blessings, use those gifts and serve the world. And he said, three, be happy. Any pain you have, just give it to me. And he literally held out his hands and he said, just give it to me and I will offer it to Ganga but just be happy. And it was such an extraordinary moment on so many levels, but particularly when you, you refer to that academic sense, because by all practical accounts, yeah, the most logistic, pragmatic thing in that moment, given my education, given what we know about how these things can end up would have been to stand up and to walk out that door. And yet, there is a knowing, there is a wisdom within each of us. And for me, for the really first time, I learned how to trust it in India. I had never really trusted myself. And as my, as my voice, as my knowing, as my intuition became stronger and stronger and more and more aligned with these divine experiences I was having, I found myself able to say, yes, I promise in a situation defying not only my mom, but my most beloved and respected professor not because they were wrong, but simply because this moment actually defied what I had been taught, that this moment was an absolutely unique and precious and divine moment. 
And sometimes when we're looking at the scientific and academic way of looking at things, we're looking more at averages and likelihoods and statistics, and we miss sometimes the possibility of those very precious and very rare moments, which only our own intuition can tell us, only our own inner knowing. And that's where, for me, learning to trust myself has been so powerful. And just knowing, knowing the universe well, is going to catch me. You know, it's because I think uh, saying, in some ways, uh, from your prior trauma, and as a result, uh, fact, in some ways, lack of trust, complete control, uh, actually completely limited you. And I think the uh, in the book about how you gave the Ganga your pain, your suffering, and had uh, the Ganga take it from you, and it released you. And in some ways, it, it liberated you. And uh, I think that's an extraordinary story. And, and you know, so many people in this world suffer from trauma, uh, childhood trauma, and they carry these burdens throughout their life. And uh, it causes them so, so much pain. And, you know, finding that thing, whether it's um, uh, a religious experience or some other mechanism to create this deep sense of psychological safety and the ability to trust what you're feeling and to trust your past, it, it really is truly uh, a blessing. I, I wanted to uh, sort of shift a little bit. Obviously, at that point, you became a disciple of uh, your guru. Uh, uh, but when did you become a renunciate? How mm. long did that take? And maybe you can tell people what that sure. is. Sure, yes. Exactly. So I officially took vows of renunciation, what we call sannyas, which is the monastic order. And so these, these orange robes are the robes of one who has been initiated into this monastic order of sannyas. I officially did it in June of 2000 on the very, very sacred day of Ganga Dashera, which is the day that Mother Ganga came onto the earth. So it was a very auspicious day, but I had been there almost four years and I had been wanting to take sannyas, but Puja Swamiji, my guru, made me wait. And he actually made me come back to LA and to get my parents' blessings on it. Um, and that he didn't want me to do anything that was going to cause any kind of pain or strife or suffering or stress for them. So he made me come back and get their, get their permission for that. But he also made me wait, I think, to make sure that I was that I was really sure 
because obviously it's not a joke and obviously it's not something you want to realize two weeks later oh my god what have i done and so so he really made me wait but you know it's been so interesting because people talk about all of the very intense spiritual practice that's necessary to overcome so much of the calls the urges of desire and remember i walked into this as a 25 year old phd student who had pretty much never abstained from anything in her life nor ever saw any benefit benefit in abstinence from anything and you were married of course and and prior to being married i had been in continual relationships, even sometimes overlapping them to ensure that I never was alone, alone for a moment, which we, is we part of the time. But, but you know, you, you speak about it's, it's important only because you speak about that issue of control. And we try to control our feelings. And for me, abandonment was an issue. That was one of my core issues and core fears. And so we do things to try to control for that. Like I will go from relationship to relationship, even overlapping if necessary to ensure that I never have to experience that abandonment, that that fear that I am having never actually manifests. And so when you speak about control, it's so deep and so powerful because of course, none of the things that we do to theoretically try to control the feelings, none of it actually works. The addictions don't work. The drugs or alcohol or food don't work. The relationships don't work. And it's not until we actually do the work inside that we're able to become free of that. So yeah, I I had never abstained. And when I had this incredible experience on the banks of Ganga after coming to India, it became really clear to me that this was the life I was meant to live right here, there in the ashram. And yeah, in the beginning, I certainly thought my husband was going to live there with me. But that became pretty clear pretty soon that he was was not interested in doing that. And after that, after the, the separation from him, I realized just viscerally, intuitively, I knew this is what I am meant to do. I had I had no more desire. It felt to me like God had actually come through me with a, you know, like a dust buster one of the little vacuum cleaners that get into all of the nooks and crannies. And literally it just sucked up from me. Desire for anything that wasn't going to be conducive to this life that I was now living. And whether it was bagels or avocado or sex or anything in between, that these things that were no longer going to be part of my life that prior to that had been big parts of my life, God just sucked up the desire for them in this, this beautiful vacuum cleaner. 
And it, it really, it really felt like that. And of course, there's a, a chapter in the book that shares how a few years later, in a whole other situation, desire came back and how I went to Pooja Swamiji and told him about it and the beautiful story and teaching that he gave me along with meditations of how to how to work with those energies so that you don't become a slave to them. So it's been a very, very powerful and extraordinary experience. I mean, for the last 25 years now. Well, I mean, you've done extraordinary things and, um, uh, and this idea of being a, a disciple, but one of the most important things I think is an understanding that your wholeness relates to being of service to humanity. And maybe you can um, tell us about that. We certainly know from a physiological that when you care for another, when you're of service, yes. it has a very profound positive effect. And again, you know, I mentioned how many of these traditional practices which oftentimes Western medicine uh, diminishes, uh, it's clearly shown now that being of service, caring for others, having an open heart really does have a profound effect on us, and including actually increasing our longevity, just as much as it does on the people that we're serving. Beautiful. And you know, I love, I just love where science and spirituality overlap. I love where science discovers the truth of what our spiritual teachers, our mystics, our sages, our saints, our rishis, our prophets have been telling us. I love that because I'm still, I'm still such a scientist at heart. I love science and I love being able to have that scientific way of saying to people, okay, so if you don't believe it spiritually, no problem. Here it is scientifically. And yes, I'm aware of a lot of the studies around altruism and around service. And I love it because on a spiritual level, we know that being of service is a gift not to the person you're serving. I mean, that's, that's a byproduct, that's a bonus, but it's a, an incredible gift to us because it allows us to get out of ourselves. It allows us to get out of that which keeps us separate. The greatest illusion, the greatest ignorance, the greatest cause of suffering in life is this myth of separation, this idea that I am separate, separate from God, separate from creation, separate from spirit, soul, universe, love, all of that. And when we serve, it gives us that opportunity to no longer be this separate being over here. And that requires, by the way, an intention when you're serving, because you can certainly you know, 
engage in service, whether you are working in a soup kitchen, whether you're stuffing envelopes, whatever you may be doing directly for people or for an organization, you can do it with the mindset of, oh, I'm this great humanitarian. I'm this great philanthropist. Did I, did I get my gold stars today? And I would still encourage people to do it because A, it's benefiting those you're serving. Hungry people are getting fed, so that's a good thing. And B, because eventually the act of service will purify your mind. But if you can go into it with the awareness that we're not separate beings over here serving separate beings over there, but we're actually serving the self. The same way that when I trip and I fall and my leg gets injured, the other leg picks up the weight. It's what we call limping. But you don't have to say to the healthy leg, you know, oh, great, wonderful humanitarian right leg. Could you pick up the extra weight? Because, you know, I hurt my left leg. It just does it automatically. It understands the left leg is self. And as we scratch our itches, feed our grumbling tummies, lie down to sleep when we're tired, do whatever is needed, put on a sweater when we're cold, as we take care of our own self, service, and for me, this is why it's been such an extraordinary practice, is to see the self in others and to not ask, what is it I'm doing? But just to be, to be a vehicle, to be a vessel, that it's not about, okay, what's the most glamorous service or what's the most fun service or what's the type of service that's going to get everybody to appreciate me or put me on the cover of a magazine, but just how can I be that instrument, that vehicle, of grace, of love, of service, because as it happens, as you serve, your heart changes. That's what I no, found. I, no, I think that's absolutely correct. It's interesting. There have been a few studies that have been actually very correlate being of service authentically not because you want to get the award, uh, that actually when it's authentic, it has a dramatic effect on your lifespan. And in fact, they did a study all <laughs> the longevity benefit, which was almost 2X in an age control group than the other. So you can't fake it. Uh, it has to truly be there. You do ultimately understand the power of that and your mind. But really, as beings, we are social beings. From an evolutionary perspective, this idea of caring for another uh, is very, very because like other species that swim off or run off into the forest, we have to care for our offspring and time.
suffering that by the release of oxytocin and other uh, um, hormones associated with these nurturing pathways. So I think it's really quite extraordinarily powerful. Another question, uh, and I think we're going to draw to the close and ask a few questions. So why did you write the book? What, what was the purpose? So I wrote Hollywood to the Himalayas because I felt like there's so much suffering in the world. So many people are suffering so deeply. And one of the main causes of our suffering is our identification with that which has happened to us in many cases in our early childhoods that has made us feel not good enough, not worthy, somehow defective in some way that we're, you know, that we need to, we need to improve ourselves. We need to become worthy and whether it's severe trauma, or whether it's just the normal ramifications of being raised by human beings who are doing their very best with the toolbox that they have, but who are humans. And in most cases are very young humans. You know, most people's parents were in their early to mid twenties. And so whether it's our parents, whether it's our teachers, whether it's our aunts and uncles, whether it's the general society we live in, the messages that most of us internalize when we're young is that we are what we look like. We are our performance in school. We are our performance at home. So we are a good boy, a good girl, or a bad boy, or a bad girl, or mama's smart one, or the stupid one, or the pretty one, or the ugly one, or the lazy one. Or tragically, in some cases, we get told you're the worthless one. I mean, kids are told all kinds of things by parents, by teachers, by elder siblings, by other family members. We also get told it by our culture. And kids, of course, are so susceptible, so suggestible to the messages that they get. And whether it's through advertisements, through cartoons, about what they should look like, what they should be like, what's wrong with them. And of course, these days with social media, it's just become even more insidious. I won't get started on that. But the point being that so many of us in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even later, are still stuck in so many ways by ways we have been harmed or abused or betrayed or cheated or just just told certain things either directly or implicitly growing up that ended up making us feel that there's something wrong with us. Maybe we were told you were lazy. Maybe we were told we're stupid. Maybe we were told we're never going to become anything. Maybe we were compared constantly unfavorably to a sibling or to a neighbor or to a cousin. And we carry this throughout our lives and we suffer. We suffer in that identity. And what I realized is that 
for the most part, when we read biographies or autobiographies of spiritual leaders, spiritual teachers, people who have had profound spiritual experiences, in the vast majority of cases, A, they're men, and B, in, in the East, they tend to be stories of men who pretty much came out of the womb enlightened. And those are incredible stories and they're inspiring and they're, you know, we, we feel awe, but they're not necessarily the sorts of stories that make us think, oh, I can do that. Oh, I can be like that. If he can do it, I can do it. And what I realized is that when people looked at me, they looked like I was somehow cut from a different cloth, like somehow I hadn't experienced pain, hadn't suffered, and therefore that I was more worthy, more qualified, more able to have these experiences, and that it was just critical for people to know that I'm not cut from a different cloth, that I absolutely no suffering and absolutely no pain and absolutely no even trauma. I know addiction and I know freedom and joy and love. And that if I can know it, so can they. And that for me has been the greatest impetus is to give people not only this great, fascinating spiritual adventure of, you know, the 25 year old white Jewish Stanford graduate who goes to India with a backpack and 25 years later ends up a, you know, celibate renunciant spiritual teacher. But the actual shift of mindset beneath the plot, because that shift of mindset is something that everyone can do, regardless of where they travel, regardless of where they live. Everyone can shift their mindset from what I think of as the Hollywood way of thinking, which is you are your body, its size, its shape, its history, its color, its race, its religion, its age, to the Himalayan way of thinking, which is you have a body, but you are soul, you are spirit, you are consciousness, you are love, you are divinity, you are infinity. And that shift is really the shift into healing and transformation. And so I want everybody to be able to have that for their lives. Well, thank you. And, and it's so true. Words uh, have power, which sometimes uh, we forget even a negative comment to somebody can impact their whole life. And it's interesting from an evolutionary perspective, as we've survived is we're attuned to negative and it sticks to us. And I think oftentimes as a result, negative comments uh, stick to us much more than positive comments. And of course, uh, and we suffer the consequences. Well, I wanna thank you so much for being with us. Maybe uh, we can, uh, open uh, our mics, if you will, and for questions. And uh, if anyone does have any questions, that would be wonderful. And I'm sure you would be happy to answer for a few minutes. And if there's sure. anything I can do, uh, I'm happy to answer too. 
Any sure, questions from the audience? If I may. Do we have somebody monitoring yep. questions? I think we do. Well, on our on our Zoom, I know that Kupali is monitoring that and sh should be able to unmute people if they have questions on the Zoom. And if questions are coming in from other places, um, I believe that Anurud is checking and would be putting them into the Zoom chat for you. I just I uh, do see though a question on the chat since we're just getting yes. started here. Uh, yes. It says, um, Sadvi, do you think your life journey was pre-planned by the divine? Absolutely, it was. Absolutely. There is no way I could have planned this. People used to say to me, they've stopped asking now that it's been 25 <laughs> years, but but in the beginning, people would say, So what's your plan? You know, how long are you planning to stay? And I always would say, you know, God is running my life so much better than I ever ran it. Mm. Why in the world would I take the reins out of God's hands and try to put them back in mine? So absolutely it was destined because, as I said in the beginning, I didn't even have any conscious awareness that I was on a path. So I feel deeply and incredibly blessed to have been carried along this extraordinary path. And the, the only piece of it, from getting on an airplane to come to India to today, the only piece of it that I could even begin to begin to begin to think about having any credit for was the decision to keep my heart open. That was the only part that where my mind came in and said, aha, I'm going to do this. Other than keeping my heart open and that decision, um, the rest uh, of it has been just sheer grace. That's why I say it's a story of grace. I had hey, a question. Uh, I think your hand's open there. Uh, go ahead, Jay Sethi. I see Thank you, you very much, uh, Mr. James Dottie. Uh, first of all, Sadhviji, it was nice to uh, see you in Princeton. Uh, you were there. And, oh, uh, you know what? We have to. Hang on. Do we have to unmute? I just oh, did. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry, Can you hear me? Yeah. So, Sadhviji, it was great to see you at the uh, Princeton uh, meeting and the dialogue that you had there with the Princeton faculty. And uh, I had the privilege to visit Paramath Ashram, and I met uh, your Swamiji and I would say my Swamiji, I met him in the cottage and I did the Havan, uh, uh, you know, I joined the Havan pro uh, program there. I've done hundreds of programs in New York and in New Jersey. That's where my spiritual world has been, you know, from the past. I was uh, an oncologist for 40 years of my life and then I started my spiritual journey. And uh, we talked about science and spirituality. I went to Gangotri in 2021, and I learned meditation there. And now I think med meditation has become an essential component of my life and to give me peace of mind. So there goes the connection between a scientist and a spirituality. And hopefully Wonderful. I'll see you in Paramartha Ashram and 
Guruji sit with him and uh, apprise him of my new mission in life. And that is, I want to have a place in New Jersey, a, a, a non-for-profit, which I've already- JJ, I'm so, I'm, so, I'm so sorry to interrupt. The dilemma that we're facing is that the people who are live on Instagram can't actually hear the audio from Facebook. So if you could just give the question, then I can repeat it, and then the people on Instagram can hear it. Otherwise, all of the time that you're talking, they're not able to hear what you're saying. So I if got you've it. got if you've got a question, just let me know what that is, and then either Jim or I can repeat it for the beautiful family that's live with us on Instagram as well. Well, I would just say finish it that you know you have been very courageous to get into this and uh, renounce the world. I wish I could have done it. I didn't have the courage to do that. Thank you. Well, well, thank you. Uh, are there any other questions? Yes, I have a question. My name what is, is your question? I have, my name is Yogendra Gupta and I know Sadhviji and Swami Chiran Sukti Maharaj for a long time, being the president of Hindu Jain Temple in Pittsburgh. And I know personally, and I think Sadhviji once visited my home as well. But the question is very simple, that I know you for the last 25 years, Question is that what inspired you to go from Stanford State to India, only being vegetarian? Yogendraji, I could not hear you. I think, Jim, your audio is also on, so I'm getting this echo from both sides. Audio How is it now? So now it's better. Now, Yogendraji, I'm so sorry. Can you can you repeat your question? Well, uh, as you know that I, I know you for last probably 25 years since you came to Rishikesh. And uh, Swamiji, I know him when he came to Pittsburgh in 1980, actually. From there, I start going back. But I moved to Washington, D.C., and you once visited my home as well. I remember. Yes, I remember. My question is very simple. You gave a very good talk today about your experience that how you became uh, reached to uh, Rishikesh. But very question from Stanford to India, what inspired you to go there and get this uh, journey going on? So, so just one second. Just. It was a, a such a blessing. He asked for those on Instagram, he asked what inspired me to go from Stanford to India and to embark on this journey. And it really, as I've, as I've said and shared, it was just grace. I agreed to go just because I loved vegetarian food and that's why for me i'm so grateful because if it were up to me i never would have embarked on this journey i wish i would have i wish that i had known that this life existed that spirituality existed that it was this incredibly powerful way into the truth of myself and of the world but i didn't know that and so it was really only by truly grace that I was 
brought to India and then through the beautiful grace of deciding to keep my heart open that I ended up where I did in Rishikesh and had these experiences and then met Pooja Swamiji, my guru, and with his blessings and grace have had the most miraculous and blessed last 25 years. Well, uh, I, Pamela we, Smith, we did you have a question? Just one, one more Looks comment. Like we appreciate you your communication on every Wednesday. Uh, we get it. Uh, questions? It's very inspiring. Okay, continue doing this, uh, uh, Sadhviji. Uh, it's very Wednesday. We get that very inspiring. I read it every time. Your book is outstanding. I have downloaded it on my computer. And off and on, it gives not a peace message to your mind. And you really get focused at what really God is all about. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Did they freeze? Can you hear me? So I, I maybe think you may be having some technical difficulties. That's okay. Can you you know, we can always we can always come back for another question and answer session at another time as well. But if there's if there's one person who's ready and able technically to join us, we can take it. Otherwise, we can schedule another question answer session another time as well. Hi, this we, is. We would love to have that question and session at another time. This is 10 p.m. now here in DC, East Coast. Can you hear me? <clears throat> yes. Great. First of all, it's so wonderful to see you, Sadviji and Jim. It's so great to see you both in holding space together. Um, I just think that so many people are so many young people, it's 10% of our youth just in the US alone are suffering from depression. Um, so many people are talking about a spiritual disease, um, depression, this growing depression. And here in the West, we treat it with medication. And I was just thinking about what you were saying, Sadviji, about how much of us we identify, how we identify with those problems or with that suffering. And I'm just wondering, um, now there's this uh, conversation about taking agency over our uh, neuroplasticity, our own neuroplasticity. And that's sort of, again, a very Western approach of controlling the situation, as opposed to what you were saying earlier, which is almost like an, an allowing or an accepting or a trust. And so, um, you know, we're, we're struggling with um, a loved one going through this and, you know, how to find that East-West balance with this approach because both have validity. Mm -hmm. and, um, and yet, you know, it's really hard to speak that language in a balanced way. What, what are your thoughts about this? Beautiful. So we'll take this as the, as the last question. And Paula, it's wonderful to see you you've 
really touched upon a very critical point for our our family and community on Instagram. She was asking about so many people, especially youth suffering from depression and typically people getting medicated for that. And yet the other side of that is this responsibility and agency over our own neuroplasticity that we now know is possible to work with our own brains. So, and the whole East-West aspect of that. So what I would say to that is there isn't a right answer. And it's really important that we on both sides not get stuck in this is the right way. On the one hand, the proponents of pharmacology are pretty adamant that pharmacology is the only way to go. And then there's the whole group on the other side that says pharmacology is never the way to go. And you're always, if you strive hard enough, if you take enough responsibility, if you do your work, you will be able to change your brain. And I would say neither of them is, neither of them is always right. There's, there's an individuality that has to do with the person, the case, the situation. What's most important is that people come out of depression and that people not feel that they are at fault for their depression. And while I'm all in favor, all in favor and super excited by all of the research around neural plasticity and around our ability to change our brains and impact our neurotransmitters and impact how our whole brains work. I also know that these ideas and these teachings can end up making people feel like it's their fault they're depressed. Similar teachings make people feel like it's their fault they have cancer. That somehow, if I could just change my brain to stop producing a certain type of cell or to produce more of a certain type of cell, that as we've learned more and more about our own ability to control our brain, our bodies, our emotions, along with that comes this sense that if anything goes awry, it is a failure in your ability to properly meditate, pray, do yoga, work your own brain, work your own body. And it is not. There, there is laws of nature and laws of matter here that are not separate from spirit. For me, one of the easiest ways to think about it is you think about the law of gravity. Well, you could be the most spiritually awakened, enlightened person in the world with the most powerful brain, mind, agency, autonomy, power in the world. And if you walk off the roof of a building, you are going to plummet to the ground no matter how powerfully and brilliantly you think you have wings because the law of gravity is gonna grab your body to the ground and in the same way yes 
there's a lot of plasticity. There is a lot of power. There are so many opportunities and so many stories and so many examples of ways that we can take back control, that we are not victims, not victims of what's happened to us, not victims of our genes, not victims of any of it. And there's a whole network of things that happen over some of which we don't have that much control. And it's really important to realize that as well, because otherwise you create a culture where your depression is your responsibility, your cancer is your responsibility. Anything you're suffering from becomes your responsibility. And the truth is that in a lot of cases, antidepressant medicine is actually what ends up saving people's life. And it is actually that which enables them to embark on practices of meditation, of yoga, of inquiry, of therapy. And so I don't think there's a one size fits all answer. My core agenda is no one should suffer depression. No one should commit suicide. No one should waste their life in bed. And if, if through pharmacology, you can get that person out of bed, you can clear their heads of suicidal ideas, you can keep them alive long enough to see the light at the end of the tunnel, or to at least begin to be aware that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, that's great. And so I think the two actually go hand in hand very well. And I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't judge, I wouldn't condemn, I wouldn't try to convince otherwise. If somebody's going the route of pharmacology, what I would do is try to do a yes and. So yes, here we have antidepressants and so glad those are helping you and that's wonderful keep taking them and along with that let's look at whether it's a personal practice whether it's a community practice how can you get more deeply connected to other people how can you be more of service how can you naturally get those chemicals flowing as dr dothi was talking to us about but let the two of them go hand in hand where necessary because ultimately the agenda is to ease people's depression to keep them alive and to help them heal in whatever way we need to in whatever balance of lifestyle changes spiritual work and pharmacology it's like if somebody had really bad Diabetes, yes, obviously, you'd want them to lose weight, you'd want them to eat better, you'd want them to exercise. But if in order to keep them alive long enough to benefit from losing weight and exercising and changing their diet, they need to be taking medicine along the way, that's also okay. Well, uh, Sadvi, thank you so much uh, for uh, being with us today, and I am sure everyone has enjoyed it. It's really a great pleasure to 
see you electronically or virtually, although I've been blessed to see you in person as well recently. Um, for all of you, uh, our listeners, uh, this will be posted on the Seacare uh, website, the Center for Compassion, Altruism, Research, and Education at Stanford, and that's ccare.stanford.edu. I'm sure it will be on Saadvi's uh, website uh, as well. And I'm also sure that either of us uh, would be happy to answer any questions uh, in the future and we'll uh, make resources available to uh, assist you with that. So thank you all uh, mm. for being with us. Thank you so much, uh, Sadbi. And I do hope to visit you in Rishikesh at some point here. So. Oh, I can't wait. You know, they just announced today, I just got the news today that India, as of November 15th, India is open to tourists, that they're open to foreign tourists. If you come on a chartered plane, you can get in as of October 15th, but commercial flights as of November 15th. So I really but look forward to seeing you. And I wanted just also with response to the people who still have questions, our Dr. Krupali Patel, who has so lovingly managed all of the tech preparation set up and running of this beautiful program, she'll be saving the chat. So any questions that go into chat, we will take them up in our satsangs as satsangs begin again shortly, and we'll take them up in future programs as well. And hopefully I'll have the beautiful joy of doing another conversation with Dr. Jim Doty, and we can take them up there as well. And Jim, thank you so much. It's oh. been just such a joy and such a blessing. It's always wonderful to be with you. So thank you again. Take care, all of you. And uh, this completes our uh, conversation on compassion. Thank you.